Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, church. It's great to be with you this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alex Arguella. I'm one of the elders here at Sacred City. Uh, I get the, the pleasure of filling the pulpit this morning while our normal preaching pastor, Pastor Justin, is in the beautiful land of Iowa City, preaching for a church out there called Harvest City Church. Um, we're thankful that he gets to go and do that work, and we're thankful to have other people to, to fill the pulpit. So we're praying for him. We're praying for that church that God would do a mighty work there. Um, but of course, we also want to see God move here. So we're praying for that as well. If you don't know what we've been doing since the beginning of the year, we've been preaching through the book of Ezra, Old Testament book, and we're going to be in this book and then the book of Nehemiah over the next few months. We do that because we want to go back to God's word for everything so that we know how to live our lives, right? We believe that God's word is authoritative, that it's our ultimate authority. So if we want to know how to live life, then we got to go back to his word. So we want to expose what Ezra chapter four today says, and we want to apply that to our life, no matter what that actually tells us. So we just finished chapter three last week. Pastor Rob preached an awesome message. He applied it specifically to our congregation which is great. He talked about the five essentials of transformative work. I was greatly impacted by that message from Pastor Rob, so I thought I might just try to continue with that theme of transformative work as we move on here to chapter four. Because the Bible is really all about transformation. The Bible is about a specific type of transformation. It's called redemption. Meaning that from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible, if you trace it out, is just one big story of God starting with creating this world, and he created it good, right, and perfect. Then us, human beings, which are a part of that creation, messed it all up. We messed it up through our first parents, Adam and Eve, committing the first sin, eating of the tree that God told them never to eat from. And since that day, this world went from being good, right, and perfect into a fallen state. But God, not wanting to leave it in that fallen state and wanting to transform it, he sent his son Jesus to fix all of it, to redeem all of it. And one of the things that fixing all of it means is that when Jesus came, he came to this earth and he inaugurated a kingdom. The kingdom of God, he calls it. And part of that kingdom coming was Jesus, of course, making a way to God for people through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The good news of the gospel. That work was the greatest example 
of transformative work in the history of the world. It gave us a way to be made right with God. Sinful people who don't deserve to be made right with God, it gave us a way to be made right with God. But even though that transformative work has already been done, it inaugurated that kingdom, we still live in that fallen state. We still live in a fallen world. And what happens in that fallen world is people still sin against God and still sin against other people. Evil still manifests here on earth. Families are still broken. Relationships are still hard. We still get weeds that grow in our yard and wrinkles that grow on our face. But thankfully, God also is gonna make an end to all of that. He tells us in his story that one day, it's all going to be made right. One day, once again, things will go back to being good, right, and perfect. The kingdom of God will be fully here. The question is, what needs to happen between then and now, right? What needs to happen between this time where everything is not good, right, and perfect and a time in the future where everything will be made good, right, and perfect? Well, back to Pastor Rob's theme. Transformative work needs to happen. Transformative work in all of us and transformative work in all of this world. So here's how I think we can see Ezra chapter four and how it parallels with where we're at in the same story that God is telling. The people of Ezra's time, the Jews, God's ecclesia, gathered people, were given a specific calling, transformative work, that was going to require all of those essentials that Pastor Rob talked about. They were going to come out of exile and rebuild the temple of God so that God could be worshiped properly and so that his people could be in right relationship with the God that they worshiped. And what that was to result in was the kingdom of God flourishing. Right from the beginning of the biblical story, God's given us this mandate. He says, go make me known to the rest of creation and to the rest of the people on this earth. Go show the rest of creation, the rest of the people on this earth, who God is, what he's like, and that he's worthy of being worshiped. We can think of that as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God moving forward, manifesting if that's happening. In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, them coming out of exile and then rebuilding the temple to reestablish the proper worship of God was how God was going to use them to bring him glory. He was gonna get glory from the work that they were gonna do, but it was also him bringing his kingdom here as it is in heaven. It's no different for us living thousands of years later. We also live in a time where some rebuilding needs to happen, some transformative work needs to happen. Like the people of Ezra in Nehemiah's time, we also, as God's ecclesia, the church, have been given a calling. We've been given transformative work to do. Not exactly the same from a practical perspective, right? We haven't been called to go and build a temple to God so that we can worship him properly. Christ has done work so that that is not necessary any longer. But spiritually speaking, or theologically speaking, our work has the same purpose and is also very specific. Here's just a summary of it. Go therefore and make disciples, disciple the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. 
in a sense, God once again was giving us that mandate, right? He was, go, he was saying, go and take dominion in this earth, over this earth. Go make sure that the whole earth, every single inch of this earth knows who I am, knows who God is, what he's like, and what he's done to redeem this world and what he's in the process of doing to restore it back to the way that he wants it. Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to participate in that? It's because that is how God is going to be worshiped, honored, and glorified. And it's how God wants to use us to move the kingdom forward on earth as it is in heaven. Now that was all just to set up the focus of today's passage. The focus of today is the biblical pattern. We see this throughout the Bible that when God's people are doing the work that he's called them to do, when they are by his grace and by his spirit fighting for the kingdom of God to move forward, to flourish here, there will always be opposition to that work. There will always be things that push back against the kingdom of God flourishing here. We saw it in the garden. We saw it with Abraham. We saw it with Moses. And we will see it here today. In a sense, we can think of it like this. God is in the process of fully bringing his kingdom of heaven or kingdom of light here. But at the same time, the kingdom of darkness is trying to keep that from happening. Again, we see a clear example as we read and preach today's passage. We can break it up like this to hopefully help us follow along. Number one, we can expect opposition. Number two, we can know their tactics know the adversaries or opposition's tactics. And number three, we can know how to respond accordingly. Before we jump into that, let me pray and then we'll get back to our passage. Father God, we thank you for uh, this morning. Again, we thank you for what's already happened. We thank you for everybody that's here. Lord, that you've brought people in to hear your word preached. Lord, so we pray that that happens today. Lord, that you would use me to preach what you want these people to hear. Lord, I don't want to preach my opinion. I don't want to preach my ideas. I want to preach what the word of God teaches us, Lord. So take anything that I say that's not from you, Lord, and don't let them hear it. Take everything that I say that is from you, Lord, and apply it to their hearts and minds. We want you to receive glory from what happens this morning. So please do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to read our passage one more time. So if you want to turn to Ezra chapter four, there should be some Bibles in the backs of the seats, or if you have a phone, you can download an app. I don't know how long that takes, but I probably won't wait for you to download that app if you don't already have it. It'll also be on the screen. So Ezra chapter four, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached the Rubable and the heads of father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the head of the fathers, houses in Israel, said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even 
until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So expect opposition. The first thing we see here in this passage is that God's transformative work will have adversaries. We see that in verse one. We see that there are adversaries or other translations say enemies to the people doing the work of God. There were people that lived around Jerusalem at this time. Ezra refers to them as the people of the land that were enemies to the people, to these exiles that were sent back to build the temple. So the first thing that we can see is that God's people were worshiping him and striving to do the work that he called them to do while living amongst people who weren't about that and even antagonistic to it. We may say that they were living in enemy territory. Now it isn't extremely clear who exactly these people were or why they were considered adversaries or enemies. It could just be what we see them doing to God's people in Ezra 4 here. But it also could have ran much deeper than that. We learn more about these adversaries that's mentioned here in Ezra if we read 2 Kings chapter 17. Now we're not gonna go there, but let me just tell you a little bit what, what happens in 2 Kings 17. What we see there is after the kingdom of Assyria, which is another player in this whole kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light war that we see in the Bible, what happened is they conquered the kingdom of Israel. And after they conquered Israel, they brought the people of Israel into captivity. They brought them into exile, into Assyrian captivity, not Babylonian captivity. Well, they didn't want to leave the land there by itself, so they sent other people to go and fill the land where the kingdom of Israel resided, which was a city called Samaria. You've probably heard of the Samaritans. Well, these people, 2 Kings tells us, that were sent back to live in Samaria did not fear the Lord, which was bad news for them. If you read in 2 Kings, it says that because they didn't fear the Lord, God sent lions and a bunch of them were killed by these lions. Evidence that God's work works through his created order, right? He's not this make-believe God like Zeus that throws lightning bolts at people. He actually works through the created order. And if he wants to punish somebody who's not worshiping him properly, he may just stir up some lions to get hungry and send them on the lands. Well, when this happened, these informants, the king of Syria had informants, and this informant comes to him and he tells him what happened. And this is what, what he says, why this happened, why these lions came to kill all of these people. He said it was because these people did not know the God of the land. That's a pagan saying this. He's identified the problem. The reason that you guys were attacked by all these lions is because you didn't know the God of the land. So the king, not wanting this to go on, he responds, and what he does, he says, well, if the problem is they didn't know the God of the land, then I need to send somebody there that knows the God of the land so that he can teach them the law of the God of the land. And that's what he did. He sent a priest from Israel to teach these people the law of the God of the land. So God was being gracious to these people, people that totally rejected him and didn't know him and didn't worship him. He was being merciful. He was being gracious. He moved towards them and said, I'm going to come. I'm going to bring somebody to teach you what my law says. As you probably know, these being sinful people who wanted to go their own way, they rejected the law of the God of the land and they still made gods of their own and they practiced pagan worship. 
What's interesting here and why I'm going through all of this is it also says that the people, in addition to their idols that they were worshiping, it says that they also feared the Lord. And how they were fearing the Lord is they appointed from among themselves all sorts of priests. So he said, okay, this guy knows the law of the land. Let's appoint other priests so that we can learn this law of the land. They set up high places and they sacrificed for the God, law of, or the, the God of the land to shrines in these high places. So they were practicing a form of worship that the priest from Israel was teaching them. So fear the Lord. We might think that's a good thing, right? The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is a good thing. It tells us that that's the beginning of wisdom for us. But what we see here with these people is although it says that they feared the Lord, they didn't fully fear the law or the, the God of the land. They didn't fully fear Yahweh, the one true and living God. And we know that because they continue to practice their worship of other idols. They just added Yahweh to the list that they had, that they already had of other gods, other idols that they were sacrificing to and they were worshiping. So because of this, they didn't truly fear the Lord and worship him properly, which is a theme that we see in these verses. Worshiping God properly. We can say that they were polytheistic, meaning they had many gods, not just one God. And they were pluralistic. They were a group of people that had many different religious beliefs, many different cultural backgrounds, many different spiritual practices that they were practicing. This here is really no different than our time. We also live in what we may say is enemy territory. We also live in a polytheistic, pluralistic society. And what this passage shows us is that type of society and the type of worship that comes out of that society is adversarial to the proper worship of God. We can take some of the more common belief systems, such as Islam or Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Hindus, Deists. You can name, can go on and on with these names, secular humanists. All of these people believe in different things. They don't believe the same things, right? We may say they all worship different gods, but the one thing that they have in common is they are all in opposition to the true Christian vision. Some of them might be way off. Some of them might just be slightly off. Either way, they oppose the full, true Christian vision. They don't want God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. They want their vision to be carried out and they are actively working for their vision and against the true Christian vision. This speaks to something that Pastor Rob mentioned last week where he said that there's no such thing as neutrality when it comes to worship. You either worship Christ and him alone or you don't. And this applies to all of life. It applies to church, it applies to family, it applies to work, education, politics, all of those things. We worship Christ and him alone in all of those things or we worship something else. There's no middle ground. There's no best of both worlds scenario. Even though many times we want there to be a best of both worlds, we want there to be middle ground and it can be difficult to stay true to worshiping Christ in him alone. Most Christians, I think, inherently know that we should worship Christ in him alone, right? We know Colossians 1, right? We know that Christ is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation, from, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and they were created through him and for him. All things on earth created for Christ. We know that. But there's something in us that causes us to desire this middle ground where it's not just for Christ, there's for other things. That's because of our minds have been so affected by the culture, so affected by this polytheistic, pluralistic culture that we live in, that we want to give more weight to good things, but we want to give more weight to things than we do the word of God. We want to give more weight to things like feelings, to things like relationships, to things like peace, to things like harmony, than we do to the word of God. So we think that everyone just getting along and coexisting and being ultra inclusive, or maybe we just want to mind our own business, right? Maybe we just want to do the whole you be you and I'll be me type of thing. We expect when it's like that, if everybody was just functioning like that, that somehow, some way, that this would bring peace to the world. This would bring good things to the world. This would end in some utopian existence where everything is roses and rainbows for everyone involved. This makes us think that it's right to keep our worship of God private and not let it influence how we do everything in life. But God never reveals to us that this is the way to do things. In fact, the Bible promises the exact opposite if we are doing it that way. There's this concept of men like Abraham Kuyper and Cornelius Van Til. They popularize this, but then many in the reform movement frequently use it today. It's that in this world, we either worship Christ or we get chaos. Pastor Justin did a whole talk on this in the last Porterbrook seminar. I encourage you to listen to that if you haven't so that you can have a deeper understanding of this. I can't spend the amount of time that he did. It was a long time on this particular topic. But this concept is telling us that there's no in-between scenario that's better than Christ and his way. There's no scenario that's better than the kingdom coming here as it is in heaven, right? As regardless of how enlightened we may have become in this world, right? No matter how smart, how wise, no matter how much we've progressed scientifically and, and socially, no matter what we think, we can go onto Google and find something out and, and have knowledge that we didn't have in five minutes, right? No matter how much that continues to progress, we need to understand this we are never going to be more pro-human flourishing than God is. We are never going to be more pro-creation flourishing than God is. This is why Jesus can say something that is a tough word, right? Why he can say something that would get him kicked off of YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, maybe even Spotify nowadays. He says, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not with me, Jesus himself said this, you are against me. And what he's saying there is if you're not with me and me alone, if I'm not the one you worship and live for, then you're worshiping and living for something else. And that's adversarial. That's opposing my way. What a mean guy. I mean, how offensive can somebody be, right? That's the way that our ears, that's the way that our minds read that in our day and age. It's not very nuanced, but the Bible has no qualms with being offensive in this way. 
The Bible is very clear that if God's people are thinking, speaking, living in alignment with that truth, worshiping Christ and him alone, which is offensive to the rest of the world, it's highly offensive to this polytheistic, pluralistic society we live in. If we are living in alignment with that, then there will be opposition. There will even be suffering that takes place in this life for those who are doing that. All of the other beliefs, even though they believe different things from each other, they are still on the same team against the true Christian vision. They are still for chaos instead of Christ. That's gonna bring conflict. When you have people that think that way and you have some people who think that Christ is the only way, that's going to bring conflict. Are we prepared for that? The first step in being prepared for that is expect that it's coming. Expect that opposition is going to be there. A good next step would to be prepared for this is studying that opposition that's coming at us. Know their tactics. My oldest son, Tatum, has played basketball for Bettendorf High School this year. And one of the things that I have been impressed with is before every game, his coaches come up with this extensive scouting report to give to the players. How tall these other kids are, what their stats are, what their strengths and weaknesses are, what offense, what defense are they going to actually run, all things so that they can prepare their team for the upcoming game. Well, we get somewhat of a scouting report here in Ezra, what it can look like for the enemies or adversaries of God's people and God's mission to bring opposition. So we wanna study this scouting report so we can know the tactics of the people who are coming against us. So let's look at these enemies of God's people, what they try to do in verse two. It says, they approached Zerubbabel in the heads of the father's houses and said, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Assyrian king of Assyria who brought us here. So that's the second King 17 story that I talked about, right? The king of Assyria sent these people to Samaria, which was nearby Jerusalem, and they lived in these lands for decades before these exiles ever returned from exile. Think about that. These people had been living their lives, making money, growing families, building culture, all of these different things, and not the least of which they were worshiping their gods happily. They were probably happy with the way things were going. So now these exiles come into Jerusalem thousands deep and start building an altar, then building a temple with plans to rebuild the entire city. Do we see how that may have impacted the livelihoods of these people of the land, how it may have impacted their peace, their culture, their political influence, most importantly, how it could have negatively impacted their mission to oppose the worship of the one true and living God. So what are they to do? Right, if they wanted to have any say in any of that happening, they needed to respond. And the first tactic that they respond with was sneaky. These adversaries try to sneak their way into the work that God's people are doing with this nice guy approach. It's the, hey, let us help you type of tactic. They come to the leaders of rebuilding this rebuilding work and claim to worship the God that he brought these, his ex, these people out of exile and claim that they worship him the same way that these exiles worship him, which is with sacrifices. It's interesting. They don't say 
that the God of the exiles is their God too. They don't claim him as their God. They refer to him as the God of the exiles. They do this because they know that they don't have any covenant relationship between God and them. That relationship didn't exist. But the exiles did have that. These people that wanted to join them, rather than having God, having this covenant relationship with God and worshiping him properly, just wanted to add him as another object of worship, similar to all the other idols that they were worshiping. Anything that might make them feel beneficial to them living their best life at that particular time. Again, this is that polytheism that I mentioned before, worshiping of many gods. These people weren't claiming to worship the one true and living God. They were claiming to worship him like we saw them worship him in 2 Kings, right? Alongside just a bunch of other idols. This can be described as a syncretistic way of worshiping God, a mixing of all kinds of faiths and beliefs and spiritual practices, right? All these spiritual practices, all these religious beliefs lead to God, that type of thinking. This way of worshiping happens throughout the entire Old Testament. And even when we get to the New Testament where the Roman Empire was in power, this Roman Empire had no issue with the Jews worshiping Yahweh or or even the early Christians worshiping Christ. Didn't have issue with that. All they cared about was whether or not Caesar was going to be worshiped as well. All they cared about is that there was peace on that end. You worship whoever you want as long as Caesar is also worshiped. So they could have Jesus, but not Jesus alone. They wanted Christians to syncretize their beliefs, to syncretize their worship with the Roman culture's worship. Just another version of this tactic that the adversaries in Ezra were attempting. Be nice or kind to the Christians as long as it was part of this mixing of all different types of worship together. I wish I could say that this doesn't happen anymore, but this is all over the place in Christianity. It's all over the place in the church. We have some extreme examples. We have places like Union Theological Seminary in New York. If you haven't seen what Union Theological Seminary is doing, they are having their students confess their sins to plants. They see this as an expression of worship and as a liturgical response to the current climate crisis. An example of worshiping something other than Christ. Again, they would claim that they worship Christ, but then they have these other worship practices that Christ has never ordained. It's worshiping, not just him, adding things to it. We have less extreme examples like egalitarianism, radical feminism, Wokeism, Marxism, socialism, communism, secularism, all kind of isms. All of these have been slowly and sometimes quietly infiltrating our culture and our churches because they sneak in with this nice guy, let us work with you approach. So we can make this world a better place together. We can make this place peaceful. If you would just not be so all about Jesus and let other things be worshiped at the same time, this place would be much better. And it's so far down that slippery slope that now it's hard to even see the effects of this happening because it's the swamp that we're all swimming in now. 
And when someone does see the effects of it and attempts to bring attention to it and speak out against it, any type of this idol worship, when it's spoken out against in the culture, in, even in the church in many cases, these people who are speaking out against it are typically deemed as intolerant, bigoted, unloving, unkind. They lack gentleness. They're not Christ-like. They focus too much on specific sins. They are too opinionated and really should just stick to preaching the gospel. But church, all of these different isms come from worshiping idols, which means that if they are worshiped, it will lead to chaos. The gospel doesn't lead to chaos. So if we're preaching the gospel, then it won't lead to chaos. That's, so calling these things out and preaching against them is a form of preaching the gospel. Mixing it with Christ doesn't get rid of the chaos that these things bring. Adding Christ to worshiping of these things doesn't get rid of the chaos. We've seen it happen with liberal churches and denominations a long time ago. Many of them have completely left the gospel of Jesus Christ completely behind, but it's seeping into even conservative churches and conservative denominations more and more as well, especially in the last few years. It might sound good to be tolerant to this. It might seem like a good thing to worship Christ, but allow some of these other worldviews to also be involved. After all, we could get rid of so much tension and so much conflict, and maybe these other worldviews have some good things to offer. Look back at the passage. Look back at the, that verse. At first glance, we maybe could think, what's so bad about this? Practically, this seems like a great idea. Building this temple was going to be hard work. And there's a lot of that work to be done. So why not use some extra hands on deck, right? That would make things so much easier and they could get to the finished product so much faster. This had to have sounded good to the leaders and or the people who were doing that work. We can think the same way. Why not be inclusive to people who don't fully hold to biblical orthodoxy? We all know that there's strength in numbers. The more people we have in church, in Christianity, the more positive impact we can make. Who cares if they, what they actually believe or how they actually live? The more people, the more giving. The more people, the more volunteering. The more people, the more diversity of thought we have in the church, which we, means that we can help understand, relate, and minister to so many more people. The more people we have, the more social change can be made. But church, if they're all of those things, even if there's good in them, if it's not coming from worshiping Christ in Christ alone, then it's chaos. And we can't take that bait. That's the first thing we have to see about the adversaries to the proper worship and work of God. They want to get us to invite them into what we're doing and bring their worship practices into it. They want to cozy up with us so, that we can so they can have their way and derail our worship and the work that God's called us to. Let's look back at our passage and see if it gives us anything on how to respond to this. We can see Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the leaders respond to this offer to let them help build the temple. It says in verse three, but Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
We're going to go back to verse three in our last point, but for now, this tells us that syncretistic worship has no place in the worship in the work of God's people. It should be rejected. Christians should worship and work for Christ alone, and we can't let our worship and mission that we are on get infected with anything that's other than him and his way. I hope we all say amen to that. There we go. But remember what our main point is today. When we do that, if we're faithfully doing that, it won't be received well. We see that in verse four. Here we can see some other tactics that our adversaries may use. Verse four, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. So this shows us not only the second tactic that adversaries use, but more importantly, that there's this relentlessness of those who are in opposition to God's work. First, they tried the sneak attack, right? Get in as those nice guys who just want to get along and help rebuild and worship God alongside the exiles. But now they're no longer nice guys. Their approach with the leaders didn't work. So now they go after the subordinates. They go after the people. We don't know exactly how they discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. So all we can faithfully take away from this verse here is that these adversaries weren't going to be easily dealt with. They clearly didn't take the rejection from Zerubbabel and the rest of the leaders and say, game over, we can go back and try to find something else to live for. Remember, when you are not worshiping God and on his mission, you are always worshiping something else and on another mission. And this affected the people of God. It seems that the people of Judah here in Ezra could have benefited from Joshua's call to be strong and courageous. This relentless pursuit to derail the work of God had called his people to, from these adversaries, got to the people of God. It slowed them down. They started to live and work from a place of fear, which led them to questioning whether or not they should even continue the work at all. This makes me think of the current cancel culture that we are experiencing now in our day. It's becoming more difficult to come forward or go public with a position that is contrary to the, pub, to the popular position because the mob discourages and scares people away from doing that. And they scare people away from doing that through threat of ruining a person's reputation, ruining a person's livelihood, affecting this person's family, you name it. They are relentless at going after a person or a corporate body like the church until that person or that organization is completely destroyed. We see this happening all over the place. Combine this with the censorship of anything that is contrary to the popular agenda by mainstream and social media outlets and you see how this is very discouraging for God's people. It's very discouraging to do the work that God's called us to do. Proclaiming Christ lordship over all things, speaking out against abortion, critical race theory, radical feminism, lockdowns, mandates, being for biblical anthropology or biblical sexual ethics, all of this will get you canceled and or censored pretty quickly in our culture today. That's discouraging. That can make us afraid to press on. It can make us want to join the chaos-inviting polytheistic worship of our culture. It can make us want to accommodate to that popular 
opinion. So we have to ask, will we do that? Will we, like these exiles, stay faithful as hard as it was to continue the work of God, to continue worship God properly? Will we stay faithful like they did, which he's called us to do? Will we fight for him to be known? Will we fight for him, for the knowledge of the Lord to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea? Or will we give in to the fear? Will we fall into accommodation to the cultural norms of the day, syncretize with the culture, or maybe become separatist and run away from the culture and create our own little Christian communities that never engage the opposition on anything important? These are situations that we need to be prepared for. If we haven't already come against such opposition, we can trust that we will in the near future as things continue to move further and further away from anything that resembles a society with Christian values and Christian ethics. We live in enemy territory. Opposition is going to come. Verse five gives us the next tactic on the scouting report. It says that these adversaries were even willing to stoop to bribery which apparently was commonplace for the Persian culture at that time. So it was nothing out of the ordinary. But what it says here in verse five, it says, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. These counselors that it mentions here were likely Persian governors who ruled over Jerusalem. They would have been able to make decisions to frustrate the plans of the exiles. Maybe shutting down the supply chain for materials they needed. Maybe setting curfews for people which would have stopped them from continuing to work how they wanted to do it. We don't know exactly what they were doing. All we know is that whatever these counselors were doing, it was frustrating, it was disheartening for the exiles. Making their work very challenging. So what we see here is we can expect our opposition to go further into just slander, just calling us names, just censoring us or canceling us. They will attempt to frustrate the work of God that we are doing through professional and political means as well. Get abortion mills funded, pass this C4 bill in Canada that Justin mentioned a few weeks ago. They can take God out of schools they can take God out of government buildings. They can take God out of everywhere in the world. They can make parents not be able to tell their six-year-old that they're a boy and that they can't be a girl. All of these things are coming at us. It's not just slander. It's not just cancel. They're using political means. They're using professional means to stop the full Christian vision from moving forward. Stop the kingdom of God from moving forward. Again, will we be prepared? The last tactic that we see, I'm stealing from next week. Verse six, it says, and in the reign of Asuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. These adversaries had tried the nice guy approach and it failed. They tried the not so nice guy approach and it failed. They tried to get the governors to stop the work of God, but it failed. Something to rejoice in, right? No matter what the opposition brings, God's people, although they were fearful, they continued to work. Nothing stopped the work of God. Nothing stopped the kingdom of God moving forward. 
So then they try this kind of last ditch effort, this last tactic, tactic to stop the kingdom of God moving forward. They write to the king to try to derail the work. Again, they write to the person who they think is in control. They write to the person who they think has ultimate authority to stop whatever's happening. Relentless in their opposition. Relentless in trying to stop the work of God moving forward, of trying to stop the proper worship of the one true God. When I read this, I think of lobbyists that try to get things done. I think of things like Roe v. Wade. I think of things like Obergefell. I think of draconian lockdowns and mandates from the top of our government. All these things that are attacking freedom. This tactic is still used by God's adversaries. Remember, anyone that is not for Christ alone is an adversary to his kingdom coming and to him being worshiped and honored properly. They are against the great commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. They are against the great commission to disciple the nations. They don't want us to love God. They don't want to love God themselves. They don't want to be discipled and they will fight against that and fight for their mission to move forward. We will get to see next week how this letter gets responded to what the king does when he receives this letter. But to get to our last point, let's go back to verse three. So again, we have all of this opposition coming at us. We have all of these different tactics that are coming at us. What is the right way to respond? How do we respond accordingly to the opposition to proper worship of God and the work that God's called us to? I'll read verse three again. It says, but Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. Again, how mean are these guys? Did they not understand that there's so much gray in how to worship our God? Right? That's the type of way that we can think when we read this passage. Again, back to how our culture has influenced our minds, has influenced our hearts. We immediately think, man, that's unloving to say to these people. That's breaking the 11th commandment. You know what the 11th commandment is? Thou shall be nice all the time. These guys were breaking that, right? This doesn't seem loving. And it darn sure doesn't seem very missional, right? We're a gospel-centered missional church. We highly value mission. We Value going after people who don't know Christ, going after people who reject Christ. So this doesn't seem to be missional, right? Couldn't they have just allowed these pagans to come alongside them, live life with them so that they could show and share the goodness of God to these people? Man, they could have lived out their identities as a family of missionary servants, learning to live all of life together for the glory of God. Done that through rhythms such as listening to them, blessing them, recreating with them, eating with them, they could have done that. But they identified something, something that we should learn from as we go about living in community and on mission, living out of our identities and living through these rhythms. They identified what's underneath all of that. They identified what's the primary driver of living that way. And that's the proper worship of God. None of that None of those identities, none of those rhythms, regardless of how good it looks from the outside or how good it feels to us if we're living that way on the inside, if it's separated or if it's disconnected from the worship of God, 
then it's not the worship of God. It's the worship of something lesser, which we should reject, right? And be on watch for anything or anyone who may be taking us down that path. The leaders here in Ezra identified in these adversaries that worshiping God wasn't ultimate for them. And they knew that allowing that type of living to stick around, to call a truce with these people would be dangerous for them and dishonoring to God. This is an example of these leaders doing what Christians should do. They had a decision to make. They came together to critically think about whether or not it was right to take this help or to not take this help. They drew off the word of God. The word of God tells them how to live, how to worship him properly. So they went back and said, this would not be in alignment with how God has told us to worship. And they went off their past experience. God has told his people plenty to not worship other gods. And remember, these people were in exile for over 70 years because of that very thing, of worshiping other gods, of allowing people to come in and drag them away from worshiping the one true God to worshiping multiple gods. So these leaders make this decision to say, no, we can't let that happen. We can't partner with you. We can't let you affect how we worship God. One way this applies to us. We love this theater. We've been here a long time. We have people here that have been very good to us and the partnership that we have has allowed us to live out the renewing of the city piece to our mission on this campus. And it's been a blessing to the Lord. But this is a city or government owned building. So something that we as elders have to be critically thinking about and praying about is from a tactical perspective, is it wise to stay here since there is the potential for the government regulating when, how, who we worship? Especially since we've already seen little hints of that over the past couple years. Not saying that, is, that that's the way it is now, but we want to be critically thinking about this. If we determine that being here may be dangerous to us doing the work that God has called us to do or, and or worshiping him properly, then the leaders of this church, like the leaders of Ezra, will have to make the decision to have no longer the relationship that we have regardless of the good things that still apply to that relationship. Tough decisions. But to not do that would be dishonoring to God, we, to the God we worship and detrimental to his people. In preparation for that, we're talking about, we're praying about, we're looking for a building to purchase. We're actively doing that. Where if we find this building to purchase, many of those regulations that I mentioned wouldn't affect us. So that's just one application that we can take here. But man, this is so many applications. 2022 has already brought some bombs on this church, hasn't it? There are changes coming and changes have already been made. The answer to why all of these changes is what I just went through. As elders of this church, we have been given a call to lead the people of this church in the worship of God and in the work that he's called his people to do. If we determine that something, anything about this church is out of alignment with that call, then it's our responsibility to step into that, address it, and then try to get back the whole church back into alignment with the mission that we are on. That could be something with MCs, 
That could be something with leaders. That could be something with the realm. That could be something with graphics. You name it. We're always on guard. We're always watchmen. We're always looking for anything that we believe could come in and derail what we believe God has called us to. Which brings us back to how to respond accordingly to opposition. The proper response to opposition is to continue the worship of God and the work that he's called you to do. But that's hard. And two things that I think we see here in Ezra that I think can allow us to respond accordingly are we will need spirit-led faithful people and we will need spirit-led courageous leaders. Remember, it was thousands of people, over 40,000 people that left Babylon and came back to rebuild the temple. It was this collective group of God's people. Each one of them were given a part to play. Each one of them were given a role in the work that was needed to be done. Some of them were leaders in the forms of priests and prophets. Some of them were temple servants. Some of them were singers. Some of them were gatekeepers. Others were just normal people who came and did the work that needed to be done. Back in chapter one, it's interesting what we see. In verse five, it says, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord. It wasn't just these people that, were, that chose to go and do this work. It was God stirring something up in these people that said, I'm gonna leave more than likely a comfortable situation and go and do some hard work. These people were moved by God in their spirit, by the same spirit, we may say, to go and do the work that was going to move the kingdom of God forward, right? They weren't about just their own life. They weren't about what could bring them pleasure, what was gonna make them comfortable. They were about the kingdom of God moving forward. It was a group effort that did that, a family effort, we might say, to use biblical language. And we're no different, right? We have work to do, transformative work to do. We now are brothers and sisters, right? We're a family in the same Christ who all have the same heavenly father. And by the power of the same Holy Spirit, we can remain faithful in the, in the proper worship of God and remain faithful in the work he's called us to do, making disciples, planning churches, and renewing the city. Spirit-led faithful people, are necessary. Spirit-led people who are believing the gospel, right? Are knowing who they are in Christ, are remembering their identity and then living from that identity to go and do the work that God has created them for. But these spirit-led faithful people we see in verse three also had leaders to follow. And we see that these leaders who also were stirred up in their spirit by God weren't just leading in the worship practices or the building of the temple. They were also the ones who first came up against these adversaries. And lesser men may have given into that first tactic, but these weren't lesser men. These weren't weak men. It took courageous leaders to reject these adversaries. Rejecting these people's help maybe wasn't easy for these leaders' personalities. Remember, at least the guys that were mentioned were priests. They weren't prophets. They weren't these bold people speaking the truth of God. Prophets have a different disposition. 
these priestly types maybe didn't feel as comfortable stepping into that conflict and being okay with however those people were going to feel about it. It may have been harder for them to do that, but they did it anyway. They also maybe knew that these people weren't gonna stop. They knew of this relentless pursuit against the kingdom of God flourishing. So that kept coming at them, even though they rejected them. That also had to have been scary. That also had to have been frustrating, right? That comes up against their comfortability. But again, they chose to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Didn't let fear of man, didn't let relationships that they may have had with these people, didn't let their missional mindset affect it, didn't let their comfort or anything else get in the way of making the right decision. That took courage. Courage is something that we will be required to have as the leaders of this church if we're going to see the kingdom of God move forward here in the Quad Cities through Sacred City Church. The enemy can use opposition from the outside of this church. The enemy can use opposition from the inside of this church. If we're going to remain faithful in what God has called us to, it won't be weak, passive, quiet men who lead us in that. It also won't be prideful, arrogant, domineering men that lead us in that. It will be spirit-led, bold, courageous men with a humble confidence to make decisions that are hard decisions, to preach and teach the gospel, and to protect the sheep from false or syncretistic worship. I believe we have those kind of men that make up our elder team, and it's an honor to be part of that team. But we need your prayers. We need your prayers to continue the work that we've been called to do. And part of that, we also desire and we need your submission. We desire and need your confidence. We desire and need your trust. And we desire and need that because that's what the Bible tells us to do. It tells us to make the work that we're doing as elders a joy and not a burden. And it doesn't say that so that they can feel good about themselves. It says, because if we don't do that, that would be no benefit to you as a congregation. So we ask that you would celebrate when we are being those spirit-led, bold, and courageous men. But pray for us when we're not. Pray for us when we're not being those, cold, those bold and courageous men. You see, the hope is as the leaders of this church follow Christ and strive to worship him in all of our lives, we see that example being followed and emulated. That's how it's supposed to work. As the elders of this church, by God's grace and help, courageously lead well through the things that God's called us to do, the hope is that we will also see husbands courageously love and leading their wives. We'll see wives lead by courageously respecting and supporting their husbands. We will see parents courageously lead by raising their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We will see children courageously lead by obeying those parents. All Christians courageously lead this world by worshiping the Lord and the Lord alone. All of that, everything I listed out is letting our light shine before others which the Bible says these others will see that. They will see those good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That's what we wanna see. 
And I'll close with this. At our MC gathering this past Thursday, we got into a discussion about the leadership of this church in the context of this change that's coming up within missional communities. It was a lively discussion. Some people agree with the direction that we're going. Some people don't. Some people agree that we're addressing the, pro- the problem properly. Some people think that we've misdiagnosed the problem, so therefore not addressing the problem properly. There was lots of good things said, lots of good feedback, which is something that we're asking for as elders. Right? We want to know what our, our members think about this. But in the end, I think the most helpful point that was made was regardless of what you may think about a decision that the elder team has made, right? this decision that we have made could fail. It could be wrong, it could be the wrong decision. We may even change this decision, which I'm sure would be frustrating. But regardless of all that, the one thing that as members of this church can fully trust, is not us in our giftings and our, 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 our making proper decisions. The one thing that we can trust is that ultimately, we're not the ones that are in control of the kingdom of God moving forward. Whether or not we do our job well ultimately doesn't decide if the kingdom of God comes here as it is in heaven. That's a done deal already. God has already written the end of the story. All of this opposition that we talked about today, even though it's important to know their tactics, to know that it's coming, all of this opposition ultimately has no hope. They have no hope ultimately in the story of God. Although we may fail at the job that we do, we may change in the job that we do. We have a God who never changes. We have a God who never fails. And it's that God in his Christ who is the primary leader of this church. He's the primary leader of the families that make up this church. It's him who we submit to. It's him who we try to follow. It's him who we worship. And he's also the one who stirs us up in our spirit, stirs us up to properly worship him, to properly go and do the work that he's called us to do. We can trust that. And that work I said earlier is to go therefore and make disciples, disciple the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. If you look at that verse in Matthew 28, there's something that happens before and after it. Something that happens before it is it says that Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth. Not just some. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And then after that verse, what it says is that Christ, that same Christ who's been given that authority, the one who every knee will bow to, every tongue will confess that he's Lord, that Christ says he is with his people to the end of the age. That's something to bring us hope. That's something that we can trust in. That's something to give us reason to worship him and to not just worship him out of duty, right? Not worship him begrudgingly. That's something that we can worship him out of joy because he's a good father. He's a good God and he's for us and he loves us and he's gonna be with us every step of pushing back against this opposition. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you once again, for the opportunity to preach your word, I thank you um, that we get to, that you've revealed yourself to us, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us in your word, that you've revealed yourself to, to us in your son. Lord, so as people who are fallen, Lord, as people who are finite, who, 
don't know the right way to live and always think we do, always think that we know better than you and we want to go our own way. Lord, I pray that today you would use that, use what happened today to bring us out of that. Lord, to take us off the path of foolishness and bring us back onto the path of wisdom. And we know that path of wisdom is proper worship of you, proper following of you, submitting to you, trusting you, having confidence in you. So help us to do that, Lord. Use today for our growth. Use today for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.